This is Abigail Favalli, and you're listening to George Fox Talks Culture. I'm joined in the studio today with Dr. Bill Jolliffe, professor of English at George Fox University, and honestly, one of the the treasures of George Fox here. And I can say that not only as as Bill's colleague for the last 10 years, but also as his former student. So this is 2021, 20 years ago. I was a little freshman, little freshman Abby from small town Idaho in, in Bill Jolliffe's Great American Writers class. And I remember the hmm. first day I was sitting there in the power seat, you know, like second row right in the center. <laughs> and uh, and I think I think you were you were taking attendance. And so you asked, you said, oh, you know, what's your name? I said, Abby. Or I think I said Abigail, actually, even though I wasn't really using Abigail much at the time. And then and you said, Abigail, okay. Do you have a last name, Abigail? And uh, yeah, I, I died in that moment. Actually, I'm a ghost. <laughs> I've been a ghost for 20 years. <laughs> um, no, that was that was a great. It was mortifying, but it was also that whole semester was such a good um, wake up call for the kind of challenges that I would face at college. So um, I'm very happy for you to be here, so I can have my revenge. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's I felt not going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, first, um, I would love for our listeners to get a little bit more of a sense of who you are. And I don't want like the academic CV. Mm-hmm. I want like the soul CV, right? So like, where, where do you hail from? You know, what, what kinds of people or places or things have shaped you into the, the person that you are? Sure. Okay. No academic CV. So I'll, I'll go to page two of my carefully scripted comment. <laughs> I was born in a, uh, just outside a really small town in Ohio called Magnetic Springs and grew up on a family farm. And I went to a, a little friend's church that had until just a couple of decades previous been a holiness church. So there's a combination of a, of a evangelical friend's influence and also very much holiness influence. And for a long time, I rather discounted that, you know, when I was being brilliant and young, right? But having gotten over both brilliance and youth, uh, I look back at those elements as being extremely formative for me. Uh, the, when I think of, of people who have influenced me in a theological way that bears upon my own work now, it's as likely to be, you know, a sixth grade Sunday school teacher as it was my uh, dissertation advisor. Uh, so that's probably a little, a little deeper than I was really intending to go this mm-hmm. morning, Abigail, but thank <laughs> you very much. And... Yeah, where, where, where do you want me to expound on that, if at all? So I'm really, I'm really interested in Magnetic Springs. That's an amazing name. Were there actual springs? Yes, and they were magnetic, hence the name. They were magnetic. Right. What does that mean? It means that they were magnetically charged, oh so that gosh. if you would hold your pocket knife in the springs for a while, then you could actually like pick up tacks and nails with it. Magnetic water, 
literally magnetic water and you drink that stuff and it, it's made me the picture of health that I am today. <laughs> okay, that's amazing. Um, I wouldn't lie to you. I, uh-oh, uh-oh. No, I'm not quite sure. I'll have to do some <laughs> Googling after after this podcast. But um, what about books? So one of the places our conversation is going to go today is mm -hmm. about books and especially reading, reading as a kind of practice of spiritual growth, which is something that you've, you've written about mm -hmm. um, really beautifully. And so I guess one question would be, what books have shaped you? Well, lots of books yeah. have shaped me in different ways. Some have probably distorted me a little bit mm -hmm. uh, as well. Um, when I think of the most influential writers, uh, it would vary with the time in life. Mm -hmm. uh, when I was in college, like a lot of men of my generation, I fell in love with Ernest Hemingway, mm -hmm. uh, whom I, I still ad admire very much, even though he's been out of favor for the last few decades. He was simply a great writer. And for me, he was he was my introduction into serious literary type fiction. Mm -hmm. uh, up until then, uh, it would not have occurred to me that these great writers whom you see on the syllabus for a course could also be the writers that actually move you and mm -hmm. keep you up at night. It was mm -hmm. as if those were two different worlds. But right. when I was maybe 18 or 19, I was reading, of all things, Hemingway's Islands in the Stream. That's the one that got me into Hemingway as opposed to The Sun Also Rises or A Flail World mm -hmm. of Arms or something like that. And I realized it was more challenging than anything I'd read before and that it also was moving me more hmm. than other things that I'd read. So those things were happening simultaneously. Yeah, that's one way of writing the story. Yeah. <laughs> well, you've written, you've written beautifully in this, in this little book called The Articulated Reader that all of our honor students um, read when they come in as freshmen. And I think you also use it in your own classes. I use pieces of it. Yeah. That, yeah, that's what I wrote it for. That's what you wrote it for, right? So, mm -hmm. um, and I, you know, people who are listening might think, oh, I got to look get that on Amazon, you know, but it's, it's not there because you wrote it for your students and yes. to give it directly to them, which I think is, is wonderful. But I read it a couple of years ago and it provided such a helpful framework for why reading matters, why we do what we do in our Great Books Honors Program as literature professors um, in, a, in a time where those sorts of the, the practice of reading is not necessarily seen as something incredibly valuable. Um, and so I'd like to dig into some of those ideas that, that you've written about. Um, and one of the, I guess the first question could be, there's, there's a little bit of a I don't know, gauntlet's not the right word, but there's like a, this great one-liner, this provocative one-liner you say in that book, um, there's no such thing as a bad book, right? Yes. Um, so what did you mean by that? And how can that be true? There's no such thing as a bad book. Well, I, I meant just what I said. <laughs> <laughs> um, but my guess is you want a little more on that, mm -hmm. right? So... It's, it's, it's such a in-your-face kind of a claim. I almost can't imagine myself having written it, although I did. 
And in a lot of ways, I do believe it. Yeah. I, in fact, in, in most ways, I believe it. I believe there are books that can be bad for people at particular times. I mm -hmm. really believe that. But I think what really makes the difference in the quality of the relationship that the reader has with the book is a reader's self-knowledge or willing to willingness to evolve in self-knowledge. The reason I, I called uh, that uh, manuscript The Articulated Reader is because I think you can only read at your best when you are learning about yourself or you know yourself fairly well. Hmm. Uh, I should be, as a reader, in a continual process of thinking about my own worldview, thinking about my own relationship with God, who I am in this world, in the, in the big, heavy philosophical categories. I should be thinking about uh, what makes up the human, you know, anthropology proper. What do I really consist of? Uh, what, what is God? How does that relate to me? Is there a meaning in human history? Is there a meaning in Bill Jolliffe's history? The, these are foundational questions. And to the, to the degree that I am working through these and are able to articulate these just to myself, mm -hmm. that gives me the groundwork then to look at a text that I might find very appealing or that I might find repulsive and ask a similar kind of question of that text, just as I would a person whom I'm uh, entering into a relationship with. And I can be edified by the things that I find in common with that book slash person. I can be edified by the things that I deeply disagree with, but mm -hmm. only because I'm already articulating or striving to articulate my own thought. Mm -hmm. if, if I walk into that situation blind, there are all sorts of bad books or books that might have a, a negative uh, relationship with me. Um, but my purpose in the uh, in-your-face statement was to say, let's look at the emphasis on the reader. Maybe it's the reader uh, that plays the 51% rule in mm. whether that becomes a good book for him or her. So how do you prepare yourself to be a good reader? very Socratically, I think. I want to have an examined life. Mm -hmm. The same things that can make me a good reader are the things that that are going to allow me to, to grow into uh, a more authentic person, um, a person with at least some beginning degree of self-knowledge, and I would never claim anything beyond that, at least for me. Um, but yeah, I want to become the person that God would have me to be, and I'm a book person. So one of the things that uh, is going to make a huge difference in that is the way that I interact with a text. Hmm. So, I mean, the same thing that might make me a good reader of a book or have a good relationship with a book is the same thing that might make me a, a courteous driver <laughs> or a conscientious grader of essays. Hmm. So what what is I'm wondering, like in a more kind of concrete way, like mm -hmm. when you're doing this kind of practice of reading, how do you prepare yourself? Are you reading with a pen in hand or is all this work you're describing happening internally? It's happening in, in both places. Uh, part of it is habitual. Uh, 
I, I use a lot of musical comparisons. Let's say you have a, mu a musician who, although he or she could be doing a lot more interesting things, is still spending uh, an hour or two a day doing scales and arpeggios. And even though nobody's looking, they're trying to do them with the best possible form they can. Mm -hmm. They do that because when the stakes are high and when the lights are on and when there are people in the house, they want their hand to do those forms in exactly that good of a way. All right, just like practice, and you 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 tend to practice what you practiced. Mm. So that's the musical comparison. As someone who reads and as someone who tries to live life in in a fairly self-aware way, that I'm practicing, you might say then, for being a good reader of a book too. So that becomes an unconscious element, unconscious but not unpracticed. When it comes to the actual act of reading, yeah, I got the pen in hand. Mm -hmm. You know, I got the piece of paper where I'm writing down stuff that I really, really, really want my students to be able to see. And then I might have to nudge them with the elbow into seeing. And I'm also writing down, oh, here's a crazy thought that that made me think of. Mm -hmm. uh, and no, I don't want to say this to my students because it might have nothing to do with the text. But it sure is where that presence in the text pushed my brain. So, you know, I've, I've got the stuff that's really about the text in a way that I could defend to one of my colleagues or my dean. And I've also got the places that I want to come back to and think more about uh, sort of for my own exploration and hopefully edification, both going on at the same time. So you just you just mentioned a presence in the text. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a really interesting idea. Can you say more about what you mean? Yeah. I, I use that term presence in the text and the articulated reader because somehow it's a part of the phenomenon of reading for me. I'm not trying to use it in a, in a technical way that you might hear uh, uh, scholars of narratology use it, although they, they do cross over, obviously. Uh, when I enter into a text... I'm entering into that text uh, ideally with the same level of authenticity that I'm having this conversation with you mm. right now. And as we go through this conversation, you and I are probably going to know each other in a way in, in an hour from now that we didn't know each other yesterday mm. or 20 years ago. All right. So. And I will have a certain feeling, a certain impression of you, things I like or don't like about you, or mm -hmm. things that I find very curious about you, uh, which is normal for when you're dealing with a real person. I carry that over into a text because there, there are some texts, I would say most texts have an aspect that I can't really quite define with my critical vocabulary. Uh, it's something more than that. Uh, when I, I pick up another Ron Rash novel, even if he's doing something very different in this novel, I've still got kind of a sense that it's just the same Ron Rash with whom I'm entering into a relationship. Even if one was in first person and one was in third person, and even if he has made very different stylistic choices, which in Ron Rash's case he does, uh, there's still something of Ron Rash in that book. 
just as if we talk about something tomorrow, you know, that might be very mundane and much less interesting than, than the phenomenology of reading, right? I know I'm still talking to the same Abigail Favalli. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I feel that way about the text, and, and especially the text that I really love. Mm -hmm. I feel that I know that, that person in the text. And that that person has, because of our relationship, something of a power to change me. So it's it can be a risky thing entering into a text. At least a thing, if risky is too dangerous sounding of a word, I would say reading is a thing you want to do in an articulated way. Hmm. I, I need to enter into that relationship with a kind of responsible self-awareness. Hmm. So I'm, I'm guessing that um, you've probably been thinking for decades about your worldview, right? You've, sure. you've been practicing this and... And I think we often find ourselves teaching students who maybe they're maybe they aren't in the maybe they don't have an, a worldview to articulate yet. Maybe they've got little pieces here and there, and they're not quite at, at the position to even articulate what they know because they don't even know what they know. Mm -hmm. um, so, is reading a, a more dangerous? practice then for maybe someone who doesn't have a worldview to articulate um, or maybe doesn't know how to articulate? I mean, what kind of advice or guidance would you give, um, you know, someone who's 17, 18, 19, and still very much um, trying to just figure this stuff out for the first time? Mm -hmm. I think the first thing I, I would say to that person where we in such a conversation is that I understand what you mean when you say that you don't have a worldview, but I don't buy the fact that you don't have a worldview. You have certain ways that you, that you do think about the world you live in, about your friends, about God, about what it means that you're going to college right now. Uh, you have thoughts about those. Maybe they're more impressionistic. Maybe they're a little more nebulous. You know, maybe they're like clouds flying across your sky instead of some nice clear writing from God. But you do have a worldview. Um, and the whole, the whole point in the articulated uh, reader is that I would encourage my readers to be very conscious about what that is. Uh, you have it. But if it's not articulated, I think probably there is more... Uh, there are more potential pitfalls in reading certain kinds of texts. Mm. And, and I say that, and, and maybe people are immediately thinking, oh, you, you must mean texts that are in some way uh, gross or raunchy or something like that. No, I think, I think that there are times when a perfectly nice book can be the most dangerous book. Because a perfectly nice book in which everybody is decent to each other and the good guys win and or the good guys lose, but they'd lose nobly. Those can be dangerous books in terms of the distortion of worldview because they might present a world that uh, is not congruent with the world that God made and the world that God put us in. So it might be nicer than God's world, okay? And so those, in a way, are, are, can be more problematic. You know, 
I had a, I had a friend uh, once who told me that he thought his marriage had been ruined because his wife was reading really um, very sweet Christian romances. <laughs> there, there was nothing like offensive in right. them except the fact that the view that they presented of uh, of of marriage and of mm. life in general was just so ridiculously wrong, and yet it was having a formative aspect mm -hmm. on its readers. Mm. Uh, you know, so you could say that was a dangerous book that was probably sold in a nice Christian bookstore. Right. Yeah. You know, I think I think this attention to worldview is so important because I think in my own experience when I went to graduate school in literature, there was definitely an implicit worldview sure. that was being offered um, in the in the program that I was in, but it was never articulated. No, and the question of worldview was just never asked. And I think because of that, I began to adopt this worldview that was being taken for granted, but I didn't even know it myself, mm -hmm. right, for years. Um, and I think it it did have um, a negative effect, especially on my, on my spiritual growth. Because um, I think if I were to describe that worldview, it would be one in which the question of reality or objective truth is either it's it's rejected or just totally tabled, like not even addressed, right? So to speak about literature, to write about literature, truth doesn't really matter. It's all about kind of analyzing the effect of language. Um, but there's there was never a sense that certain books could get at something important um, or deeply hmm. true, right? There were several times when I was writing my dissertation you know, because at the time, what you would do is you would find a theorist that you were working with, right? Um, and then you would take the literature you're reading, which in my case was contemporary women's fiction. So I was some novels written by contemporary women, like uh, like Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale was one of them. And then you take the theorist, and it's almost like the theorist provides this worldview, mm -hmm. right? And then you read the text in light of the worldview, right? So that was kind of what I was taught although the word worldview was never really used. Um, but there would be times when I was writing my dissertation where I would have this kind of sudden like head above the clouds moment where I'm like, what am I even doing? Like, I don't even know if any of this is true, but it doesn't really matter because I'm just kind of taking what person A says and seeing how it helps me read person B. And it began to feel just kind of like a, like a game. Like mm -hmm. I was kind of taught to do this game. Um, but then the question of, I mean, in, in my case, I was analyzing how women were depicting religious ideas like God right. in their fiction. And, but never really was I asking the question about whether or not those depictions had any real correspondence with truth or reality, mm -hmm. right? Because that question didn't really matter. Um, and I don't know what your experience was being trained as a literary critic um, if the question of of worldview was part of your education, or if that's just something kind of you've had to bring to the table yourself. Mm -hmm. um, but what was your experience in in graduate school with some of this? Um, were you already aware of this idea of needing to come to a text with an understanding of worldview in mind? Hmm. Can I can I talk about your experience first? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, do it. <laughs> um, 
you talk about uh, you know the application of a particular theoretical apparatus that you would get from a theorist to mm -hmm. a particular set of text, uh, almost as if larger questions didn't matter. I think what I would want our our listeners uh, to understand is that behind that paradigm that you are applying, there was a worldview. Yes, it was yeah. a it was a tacit worldview, and it's the the tacitness awful word the tacitness of it is is the problematic part. Um, that's what needs to get articulated, mm -hmm. and it, and it's not that it's so hard. It's 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 more of just a a matter of coming to terms with the fact that there are big questions, and and how I. Uh, think about something like God or how I think about human history really does matter in how I interpret a sentence, even if it never shows up on the page or in what I write about the page. Mm -hmm. It's there. It's it's the water that we swim in. Mm -hmm. So I, I just wanted to make, mm -hmm. make that point first, but now go ahead and remind me of your question. I'm having a senior moment. <laughs> the one you really wanted me to answer. No, I'm wondering about your own experience in, in graduate school. Okay, right. Because these things come in waves, right? There. Yeah. So I think maybe the way you were taught to analyze text might have been very different. I don't know. Or maybe not. <laughs> well, um, my graduate school experience uh, in learning to be a literary critic it's very different from my undergraduate experience. My undergraduate experience, which was in the 70s, um, I was still learning under people who had been the old new critics, mm -hmm. okay? And the, many of them just wonderful critics and people whose work I, I still love. But if I would have said um, to one of them, but what's the worldview that's informing how you're working with this text? You know, they would they would have looked at me in disbelief. Uh, you know, go back to Magnetic Springs, kid. You obviously <laughs> aren't getting it. And of course, I wouldn't have asked the question because I wouldn't have known to ask the question. Hmm. By the time I was in graduate school in the '80s, it was probably not so dissimilar in kind from the approach that you're talking about, just maybe less in degree. Uh, but in the time between my undergraduate experience and my graduate school experience, uh, I had gone to theological school, and I had a, a, a wonderful professor named Douglas Chismar, who was a, he was a philosopher, um, but he was teaching at the seminary. And he had been, uh, had some of his training, his own seminary training before he did his PhD in philosophy. Uh, uh, from a um, sort of a Christian reform kind of perspective that that uses the, or used to use at least, the language of worldview and asking foundational questions. So um, uh, Dr. Chismar sort of started to push me along the line of that kind of consideration. Hmm. Uh, and then also when I was in, in divinity school, we had a a spring speaker one year, this really does pertain, I'm not just drifting, <laughs> uh, a speaker named uh, Carl Henry, who was actually had been one of the uh, founders of Christianity Today magazine back, mm -hmm. you know, half a century or more ago. And he also used that kind of language to talk about the work that Christians needed to be doing in the world. And I will never forget a particular challenge that he gave we're sitting there in spring ministry conference, um, and he said, uh, 
um, all of you men in this room, and back then it was men, I think 200 students, maybe four women in the whole seminary, he said, you've all demonstrated that you're willing to uh, follow God into a ministry as pastors. But I wonder if uh, maybe a few of you shouldn't instead go back to graduate school in your own discipline and try to, as best you can, bring a Christian worldview into your own uh, academic discipline. Hmm. And so I guess from the time that I... I took that as my call, all yeah. right? So from the, the time that I heard that, I had a fairly clear idea of the kind of work that I, I wanted to be able to do in terms of helping people better understand text in a, in a, more, in a way that's more true to, to God and to God's kingdom and God's work. Um, it it just turned out to be way harder than I thought it would be, hmm. um, even in, in my own mind. It's like I had the parameters of, I know a lot of the reading that I'm seeing done is not being done uh, in, in a greatly beneficial way for, but I don't know how to get people from point A to B. So maybe what I need to do is make sure that I can articulate my own part A better. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I remember one of the books that was most influential to me that I think is still in print. And that was very, very influential in my understanding that goes into the articulated reader was a book by a guy named James Sire called The Universe Next Door, in which he does a, a, a really excellent layout of... Um, what it means to think from a Christian perspective that is along sort of reformed lines, uh, but I think goes beyond that in a, in a more evangelical kind of way. And that really spoke to me mm-hmm. uh, and helped push me along. Uh, and so I've been working on it for 40 years, and I think I'm starting to make progress. <laughs> if you just give me another 40, I'll get it, I'll get it figured out. Yeah. What are the... One of the other, another thing you say in, in the book, you write about how many of the, the books that have um, influenced you spiritually are not actually Christian books, right? Hmm. Most. <laughs> Maybe that's an understatement. Yeah. Um, so I, I'd like to hear more about how, I think as you put it, like a heretic or an atheist or an agnostic mm-hmm. kind of book can benefit you as a Christian. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say that it's in the same way that a heretic or an agnostic friend would, would benefit you as a person. I, if I'm moving into that relationship with some knowledge of, of who I am, or at least of who I am today, uh, which is the process aspect of that can't be overlooked, I think I'm going to have a better understanding of the world if I have a good, deep conversation with an atheist, I don't mean some, some kind of a, a witnessing deal, but I mean entering into that atheist world in a, in a way that is, is not just some exercise. I mean an atheist friend. I don't mean an atheist discussant, mm-hmm. okay? Uh, so that we can share ideas, so that I can understand what makes him or her tick, and they can understand what makes uh, me tick. Um, that we can talk on a, on a meaningful level about matters of the heart and matters of the mind. 
by having that conversation, I'm going to be a better person. Mm-hmm. By reading that that book, I'm going to be a better person through my entering in that relationship with uh, the presence and the text. Mm-hmm. You take somebody like, um, I've loved the poetry of William Butler Yeats. Mm-hmm. Just, uh, it continues to move me. Just when, just when I start to think, well, I'm, I'm just too academic and I'm too dull to be moved by anything, <laughs> then you read a Yeats poem <laughs> and you realize that you, that you still can be moved. Well, mm-hmm. a lot of Yeats poems are, are dependent on a pretty wild worldview. Uh, Yeats was, uh, for a period in his life, uh, very into uh, uh, various cultish sorts of movements. Um, and what could be more dissonant, right, with, mm-hmm. with me than that? But as I, as I read more Yeats and, uh, and enter into that relationship with him to the point that he matters to me, and I can think, okay, Yeats, what, what pulled you into what to me would seem like a fairly nutty way of approaching the world? Well, answers start to become apparent. I mean, he was, he's living in a time of, of utter materialism. So that anything that didn't look like a, a materialist worldview might seem to have had some kind of a light. And like any uh, uh, mind of that quality, or maybe of less quality, he's looking for the light. And one potential avenue that he took was into you know, the Golden Dawn and, and all sorts of other fairly strange occultic type groups. Well, I'm not going to follow Yeats into those into those groups. I suppose if I had a less articulated worldview, I might. Right. But what I can do is think, wow, the same longing for the true, the same longing to escape uh, a, a totally inadequate materialistic view of the world that drove Yeats is also what drives me. Man, I got more in common with Yeats than I am different from Yeats because we've been able to meet at a, a level of, uh, of worldview and a basic longing, uh, a longing for the truth. So that, yeah, I can say, oh, I disagree with this. I disagree with this. But on a deeper level, the fact that you are driving towards or trying to drive towards what is most true and what is the most accurate way of seeing the world as it is and human history and trying to make sense of that, well, that's right where I am. I'm right with you. It seems like in order for this to work, you need to have, you need to be really grounded in what you believe. Um, And I don't think, I think a lot of people aren't. (laughs) Um, And I, I guess sometimes maybe because of my own experience, I worry about that. I worry sometimes about, you know, my students who are still probably not maybe as grounded or rooted as someone like you who's been thinking about this for so long and so deeply. And I worry about texts that might derail them or might draw them into a worldview that I that I do see as as antithetical to the Christian one. And mm-hmm. So I, I worry about that, but then I also worry about my worry. <laughs> I mm-hmm. worry that that worry will make me want to protect them from those things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think in like here, I'll, I'll kind of give an example. So I mentioned my, my backgrounds in um, 
women's writing and feminist theory, gender theory. And a lot of um, feminist and gender theory has a very, has a, has an implicit or tacit worldview, like we described, that's pretty different from the Christian worldview in that it sees reality as very much like a, a social construct, right? And so um, basically we are the stories that we tell. And so we have to make sure that the stories we tell are serving a certain kind of political agenda that we want to create mm -hmm. um, in the world. And there's no sense that we're accountable to kind of a reality outside of ourselves. Right. Um, and so sometimes, like, I, I guess, you know, when I first started teaching, um, I would teach course in gender theory and have my students read like Judith Butler, um, who I think is a more like probably one of the more extreme social constructionist mm -hmm. um, kind of perspectives. And and then later, I think when I had more of an awakening in my own faith, I felt really guilty about that. And I felt like I had given my students like poison to drink, mm -hmm. honestly, because for one thing, she's she's really hard to read, I think intentionally <laughs> obscure. She won like a bad writing award, you know, <laughs> like it's bad. It's like a brick wall, like you're hitting your head in a brick wall, like trying to read Judith Butler. So that's one thing, right? Like you hand this to an 18 year old and they're going to like maybe understand 5% of it and then just run with it. Right. And then they're mm -hmm. off to the races and that becomes kind of their lens for how they see things. Um, and so I guess I'm wondering like, should I feel guilty about that? Should I not feel guilty about that? Like, are there are there certain texts or perspectives that aren't necessarily bad texts, but maybe bad for um, a young person who's still figuring out the world, right? Mm -hmm. Like what, I don't know, I guess I'm, is there ever a text that you've um, second guessed exposing students to? Um, I don't know if you've had any similar experiences. Yeah, I guess the first thing I would say is that I think you're right to worry. I, I think that in a in a position of responsibility, you you need to worry about whether you're you're doing the job you should do. Uh, if worry uh, worry can have multiple effects, if the worry makes you distraught and neurotic and and have awful feelings of guilt, that might be bad, probably bad. Okay, <laughs> if the worry makes you think. The next time through, I'm going to find a better way to teach that uh, so that it, it, it uh, is more helpful to my students. Then I think the worry was a good thing. Uh, I'm all for worry and, and I'm all for a little bit of neurotic activity if it works <laughs> toward a good end. But yeah, there, there are, are texts that I teach that I really wonder, uh, given at least the way I taught it, was did that have a positive effect mm -hmm. and could i have anticipated the bad outcomes and if i could have anticipated the outcomes and i didn't do uh, the work that it took to do that and to make it better then i think there i think my guilt is rightly felt and i have to ask god's forgiveness and and pray for wisdom and and hard work to to do better the next time so I, I think that's, that is a possibility. But I, I would go back to another part of your question where you said, uh, well, for a person whose worldview is maybe not that clear or they don't even know they have a worldview, um, how, how, do, how are they supposed to deal with this situation? 
And in, in a way, I think I feel pretty arrogant when I start talking about a worldview as if it was something that I just had and I could list and all these right. things. That's not the case at all. The next book I read is going to help my worldview evolve. I think it's going to, to uh, help it evolve along a Christian trajectory. That, that's my intention. But I have to go into every reading experience blind. Maybe the next book I read is going to uh, send me out of the faith. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think it will. The trajectory wouldn't seem to suggest that. But I have to enter into good faith with the ideas of that text. Anyway, all that was to say, I don't want to sound like, oh, I believe these 10 things, there you go. I mean, I'm not even creedal, all right? This is, <laughs> this is not my approach to truth. Uh, so now let's go back to that 17-year-old who, who uh, has not yet begun, at least in his or her own mind, that process of articulation. I think the fact that they don't have a formulated worldview uh, is maybe not as bad. I think what's really bad and this I think we can address as teachers, is are these 17-year-olds asking some of the important questions? Mm -hmm. I, I think it's far more important to be asking uh, those good and very foundational questions than it is to be able to click off a list of beliefs. As soon as we start clicking off a list of beliefs, um, a jillion exceptions come up as they rightly should. And, and the brittleness of, of that statement makes it that much more ready to break, all right? But if the person is in good faith asking the good questions and is being pointed in some good directions, then I think that any engaged reader should be able to deal, I won't say with, with anything, but maybe with anything with a little help, or maybe, if asking the right questions, we'll at least be able to say, you know, that's probably a good book. But maybe it's not a good book until two years from now when I've already read these others mm -hmm. or when I've had more time to think about it. Uh, I think about in the junior honors course, I think it was David Hume maybe, that I, was, that I couldn't help think, I'm not sure people are quite ready for this, not because the text itself is so hard, but because the implications of it are, are so huge. Yes, yeah. And uh, it, it's hard work. It's hard work to read such a book. It's, mm -hmm. it's hard work to feel responsible for teaching such a book, not just because the texts are hard, not just because the ideas are hard, but because what it means that I have to deal with in terms of my own worldview, mm -hmm. that's hard. That's yeah. hard too. Yeah, Hume's a good example, right? Because he's, it's such a radical skepticism, mm -hmm. right? And which I can imagine is probably really appealing to a lot of college juniors. Sure right? is. Yeah. Um, and he's also very winsome in doing yes. it. Yes, ah, that's the worst combination. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I would, I also wanted to ask you about uh, maybe more of a recent kind of trend um, that we're seeing in universities, maybe even in our own classrooms. I know I've seen it. Um, I'm, I'm curious about your experience. And um, so previously we kind of talked about maybe, maybe a, an iteration of a student who's concerned about a book because it seems to present some kind of moral or spiritual danger, right? Like, mm -hmm. okay, this is why are we reading about 
characters that are committing adultery. Like we're at a Christian college. Mm -hmm. This isn't a Christian worldview. This is threatening my faith. Um, but more recently, what I tend to see are students who see a book as dangerous because it seems to present a kind of emotional danger. Um, like this book can harm me. Mm -hmm. This book can trigger deep wounds in a way that is dangerous. And um, in order to be, you know, that, that basically this expectation that I should be protected from this kind mm -hmm. of harm. So that language of harm, I think, is at least being used in a new way, if mm -hmm. even just, I'm, I'm not even sure that it used to be used um, in, in the kind of other example I described. Uh, so, but now there, you know, I occasionally get students who they see text as potentially harmful mm -hmm. because they can be painful or disturbing to read. Um, so first, have you observed this trend, I guess, in your own teaching? And what are your thoughts about it and how have you responded to it? I, I've observed it to some degree. And maybe if I were more observant, I would have observed it more. I'm always wondering wondering what I'm what I'm missing in student responses. That's kind of a given. Um, I, I suppose that's a difficult question because it, it's a potentially uh, you're looking at a, or, or working with a student who, who's fairly fragile. Mm -hmm. uh, if that student is saying, I might be harmed by this text, maybe they, maybe they would be. Uh, so we have to think, how do we engage things that potentially may harm us? How do I how do I engage another real human that might potentially uh, cause me distress? How do I engage a book that might potentially cause me distress? Well, I think we all have to answer in our own soul: to what degree do I want to grow and change, and to what degree do I want to be protected? Uh, I suppose, uh, and I don't, I don't want this, this answer to sound calloused, and it well might, so you'll let me qualify it later. <laughs> um, if, if you don't want to read uh, books and engage people who think differently from you in ways that might be hurtful, a university is a lousy place to be, you, you know, um, because yeah. part of, of uh, how, how we grow whether we're, uh, you know, 17 or 63, is through those things that challenge us and make us re-examine and even question our own articulations. So I would say read. Read as well as you can. Get the help that you can. Go to Dr. Jolliffe's office afterwards and say, boy, this book just screws me up. Mm -hmm. And we can talk about that. Yeah. So that's sort of the straightforward calloused answer. The other thing that I would say, and here I'll get even further out of my realm of expertise, is that maybe for some people, the, the psychological um, distress that they're under is so great uh, that they aren't capable of reading a particular book. I'm not sure that the way to fix that problematic situation is to say, let's teach different books. I think it's probably to say, let's help that person get the help that he or she deserves and deal with some of the emotional things that are hurting them, um, which is a question that's related to, but really outside what book gets taught in what's course. Mm -hmm. If a person is that, that fragile, 
it isn't just a particular book in a particular class that might be damaging to them. Right. Yeah. So the problem is deeper than the particular book. Have you have you ever been wounded by a book? Like hurt by a book? Wow. Uh, let's. I'm trying. I'm trying to think if I've ever just read something and have found it uh, really, really hurtful. There certainly have been lots of books that have that have made me question my own articulations of what I believe. Hmm. Lots of lots of those, which I'm thankful for, but maybe wasn't so thankful right. for. You know, when I turned to the last page. I think to me, one of the toughest books to read are certain probably sections of the Old Testament. Hmm. I mean, as a, uh, as a person with a very high view of Scripture, believing it inspired by God, uh, I have a lot of skin in the game yeah. when I'm looking at some of the moral decisions that are, are being made. And, and even though I know that the fullest expression of God's truth was when God uh, became Christ, a living being just like us, mm -hmm. uh, and that I attempt through the understanding of Christ to go back and reread some of those through that perspective. Mm -hmm. Some of it's still really, really hard. Mm -hmm. It just uh, it causes me pain to think, oh, are were we? What's my relationship to to? Um, the fact that the people in this text just wiped out a whole lot of civilians during a war. Mm -hmm. And that's really hard. Mm. And there are times, yeah, that uh, you just kind of want to close it and think, I can't deal with it today. And you know what I do when I feel that way? I say it to myself. I can't really deal with this today. But that's a really important sentence because tomorrow I might be able to uh, reckon that in a way that's more productive and more uh, consistent with what I see as a, uh, a Christian understanding. Mm -hmm. So I keep reading and uh, realizing that reading sometimes hurts. Hmm. Wow. And that, in a way, that kind of answers the question before about you know, someone who was maybe in kind of a raw, fragile state, that being a way like, hmm, maybe I, I can't deal with this today, mm -hmm. or maybe tomorrow, maybe even this afternoon. Um, you mentioned um, before you went into the, the, the example of the Old Testament that there are books you've read that have changed your worldview or kind of um, challenged your articulation of your own worldview in a way that's, <laughs> that's uh, kind of daunting or... Um, and so do you have an example? Yeah. <clears throat> the clearest one to me, uh, it was Jack Kerouac's Dharma Bums. Okay. So tell me, I've never <clears throat> read that. So tell me a little bit about yeah. the book. Uh, it's, a, it's about a, a young uh, fellow avatar of Kerouac, right, who um, has become a, a very pious Buddhist, in, in, a, in a very 1950s kind of expression of American Buddhism, but a, a Buddhist nevertheless, okay. And 
in in the book, there's a lot of stuff uh, that's not so good, and, and that I think that that any real Buddhist would be as troubled by as a real Christian would be. Okay, but it has a a, a narrative demonstration of someone who is trying to live a very devout and pious life. Hmm. That to me was utterly winning. It was like if I could be at least on some pages, as good of a Christian and as devout in my own prayer life as that character is in his pursuit of trying to being a good little bhikkhu, right? Mm -hmm. I would be a much improved human. And so in that process, I have to start taking his faith more seriously. Uh, not at all saying that there aren't real serious differences in much of, of the worldview of that book and me, all right? But at least in one aspect that is utterly essential, I think, to the Christian worldview, which is the rightness of pursuing devotion, mm-hmm. I need to learn a whole lot from that book, and not, not just in some distance objective way, because I love the book so much. Hmm. I'm, I'm right there with him. When, when he you know, jumps off a train and he heads up in the mountains in New Mexico just because he wants a quiet place to pray, hmm. I'm with him. Yeah. And, and he's telling me, or the presence in the text is telling me, Bill, you, you got some serious, serious work to do on your own practice of devotion. And he's telling it to me through fairly crazy text. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this when I listening to you talk, it reminds me of an experience I had. And this is not with a book, it's with a film. So I don't know if we're like breaking the rules there. <laughs> um, but there's a, a film, I'm pretty sure it's called Fill the Void. Sometimes I think it's Into the Void, but that's the one where the guy is like mountain climbing and falls into a crevasse. So it's not that. Um, it's Fill the Void. And it's a film that was made by an Orthodox Jewish woman. Hmm. And so the whole thing is set in an Orthodox Jewish community, and it's basically a story about an arranged marriage. Mm. Um, But I remember watching it and just just the depiction of a a life in which religion influenced everything about that world, like especially the way they, I mean, they were wearing head coverings, right? Um, And then, you know, the men had their kind of big hats and the, the curls and... And just thinking about even the way that they adorn their body is an expression of Hmm. their religion. And so everything in that film, they had different songs, different ways that they ate, like everything was related to faith. And it it was a similar moment where I was like, I don't think any other part of my life except going to mass on Sundays is an expression of my faith. Hmm. And that was a real moment where I was like, you know, Abby, you got some work to do, right? (laughs) Like, what would it look like to actually weave my faith into ordinary things like how I approach a meal or how I, you know, what I wear? Um, And of course, that wasn't a Christian, that wasn't a Christian film. Right. Um, And, but nonetheless, it made me, I think, a better, I don't know, like better Christian isn't probably the, the right word, but it certainly like opened my heart or it inspired me to want to live a more devout life. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, in a in a beautiful way, um, I think we sometimes get get even as as Christians, 
we get trapped in a kind of a, of a tacit materialism. Mm, yes. Um, and in, in the example that you were just giving from your own life, um, I, I might think, okay, the way I eat this meal, it's just a totally material thing. It's just mm -hmm. trying to keep me from being hungry during my next class. But isn't there also a kind of a, a uh, I'll go ahead and use the word, almost a supernatural or a potentially supernatural aspect in my in my eating of the meal and of my understanding of the meal. Um, a sort of default drive materialism is yeah. is so pervasive in, in say the tacit worldviews of your previous literary yes. paradigms yeah. presuppose a kind of, of materialism that is utterly opposed to, I think, a full understanding of what it means to to be a Christian and what it means mm -hmm. to live in this world, this very sort of multi uh, multivalential world that God made. Mm. Yeah. One thing I was thinking also in the course of our conversation is this this line from Franz Kafka, uh, where he writes about how a book should be an axe that breaks huh. the frozen sea inside us. Hmm. And I, I often think about that idea when I hear discussions about texts being dangerous because they could harm us, right? Because that's, it's, that line from Kafka is recognizing the fact that books can have that kind of wounding effect, but then it's almost a good kind of wounding effect because it actually, I mean, I, now I'm kind of switching into my own sort of Christian <laughs> understanding of that, but it it can kind of open up those places where Christ's healing has not yet been, has, has not yet found in mm -hmm. us, right? Or we haven't been able to find those places in us that we can, we can open to Christ's healing. And, um, and I've certainly had experiences like that, even just last, gosh, the first week of school when we were reading Gilgamesh, right? Mm -hmm. So um, you and I are co-teaching an honor seminar with the freshmen this semester. And the first text we read was the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is this ancient Babylonian epic about Gilgamesh. Um, and he he has this soul friend, Enkidu, um, and they kind of go off on adventures together, um, destructive adventures together. <laughs> um, and in the middle of the epic, Enkidu dies. And that becomes a huge turning point in Gilgamesh's own journey, he just, he kind of loses it, you know, and he, the death of his friend so changes him that it, it, it just changes the entire trajectory of his life. Um, and, you know, this is a text I've read a bunch of times. I've taught it for years. Um, and, but the, the account of Enkidu's death had never hit me in the hmm. way that it did because I have just had a friend who died, right? Mm -hmm. This past summer, one of our professors here, um, Javier Garcia died suddenly, and and Javier was a dear friend, a dear colleague, someone who I worked with closely, um, more closely than, you know, like most people. Like we were, sure, we worked sure. closely together. So, and the last time I taught Gilgamesh was with Javier, and I had read that passage a dozen times, you know, about Gilgamesh mourning his friend, Gilgamesh staying by the body for seven days until it begins to decompose. You know that this really intense imagery, but I had never understood it until I had been wounded in a way to understand the way that Gilgamesh mm. is wounded. 
And um, after our, our seminar discussion about it, it did. It like broke open something inside me. And I went like straight to the cemetery right after that, you know, and yeah. just sat at Javier's grave and cried. Um, and then I had this moment where I like I had the book and I wanted to like rip part of it out and like leave it, you know, <laughs> and I, I held myself back from, from doing that. <laughs> but um, I yeah, that that has really stuck with me about one, like how a book that you've read a dozen times just because of where you are in your own life and your own kind of spiritual development it might not speak to you in a certain way and then suddenly hit you totally different. Mm -hmm. um, but also how the wounding effects that books can have, I think, is a good thing. Like, I I don't know, especially in our culture, I think sometimes we just lock things deep inside and we don't really, we don't really grieve the way that we need to grieve. We don't, we don't really process um, the kind of emotions that we need to process. And books help us do that. The kind of encounter you're describing and reading can help us do that. And I think that's healing um, in a way. I wonder how that would have been different if, if this was uh, Dr. Favalli of 10 years ago who had had the same emotional experience mm -hmm. with that text. Would it have been a healing experience for you then or would it have pushed you into even more or a different kind of distress. Hmm. Because what you described seemed like a really fine way of taking the axe that had struck you mm -hmm. and, and working with that or working through, I hate to use the word through because we're never mm -hmm. through, but you're working with that in a way that allowed you to deal with the painful memory and also become a, a, a way of drawing you closer into a maybe an even deeper understanding or a deeper attempt to understand God's plan for you, mm -hmm. God's plan for Javier. Mm -hmm. I, I think that this was the time for yeah. you to be embraced by that text. Yeah, absolutely. And I think actually, probably, I would have had a very different experience because I think 10 years ago, I don't know that my Christian worldview was as grounded as it is now. Mm -hmm. And so I think death in general, but especially just the death of a friend would have would have hit me in a way um, where I, you know, now I do, even though I have this layer of confusion and anger, I also underneath that have an even more stable layer of of just trust that this is how God meant things to go and that Javier is with God, right? So that mm -hmm. that kind of stable knowledge grounds the other kind of emotions that I'm feeling. And I don't know that I would have had that 10 years ago. So I probably would have had a very different experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So it might not have been a good book for you at that point. Right. Or or maybe, who knows, maybe it would have, have pushed you even more quickly hmm. uh, towards who you are now. Uh, yeah. yeah. I don't know. That's uh, one thing that's really important to me uh, and, and that I would want people to carry away from this is that the person that I am has a huge effect on the book that I read mm -hmm. and the effect of that book. And so it would seem almost a logical progression 
that the more I'm working authentically to know who I am is going to be a better reader, a, a better, have a better relationship with the presence of that text. Mm -hmm. um, and also there are relationships I might not want to be in right now. Yeah. And, and, that's, and that's okay too. Mm -hmm. um, but let's say I would decide, you know, I think the Epic of Gilgamesh really just isn't worth the class time. It isn't mm -hmm. worth the pages. It doesn't matter that much to me. Plus I find it really, really, really offensive. So let's not do that book. Uh, it's too it's too gross. It's 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 so far from any kind of a Christian worldview that it's just wacko. So let's not teach that. If I should win that argument, uh, I would have just had I won that argument, I would have robbed you from something. Yeah. That was just right for you. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe in a lot of instances, if I'm the person in the class who's really troubled. Maybe I just need to, okay, I'm going to bracket that one. I'm going to read it, but I'm going to read it kind of quickly. And <laughs> I'm probably not going to participate much in the discussion that day. Mm -hmm. I'll still try to be a good seminar participant by trying to be extra good, you know, mm -hmm. on the next book and, and, and uh, uh, pursuing the things uh, that I'm more comfortable with in ways that are helpful for other people. But I don't want to rob them of the experience right. that they might have that right. would be a very positive one. Yeah. So there there has to be maybe in a way a kind of a selflessness in mm -hmm. saying, uh, in order for this class to go better, I'm going to maybe have some not so good days. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm going to have to live live with that. And I'm going to try to do everything I can to capitalize on the days when I can most fully enter in. Yeah. Well, thank you so much oh, thank you. for being game to do this. So <laughs> this has been an edifying conversation, well, right? <laughs> I hope so. This has been a production of George Fox Digital. If you like what you're hearing, subscribe to the George Fox Talks podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts on your phone or computer. You can check us out on the web at georgefox.edu slash talks where we have videos, publications, and more. And you can also find our playlist on YouTube at youtube.com slash George Fox Talks. 